Dear listeners, we apologize for minor technical problems we had while recording this episode. And we hope that you will enjoy our conversation. Listen, everybody, there's a woman on this train, Miss Troy. Some of you must have seen her. They're hiding her somewhere. Do you hear? Why don't you do something before it's too late? Please, please. I know you think I'm crazy, but I'm not. I'm not. For heaven's sake, stop this train. Leave me alone! Leave me alone! Welcome to the 21st episode of Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock podcast. My name is Michał Leszczyk, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host... Sebastian Smolinski. Hello. This is, believe it or not, the 21st episode of our podcast in which we go through the entire Hitchcock's filmography, film by film, and we discuss those films trying to inject a little bit of our Eastern European experience, which will come in handy today, by the way, and uh, discuss films that really mean a lot to us. And since recently, we are discussing those films with an array of fantastic guests. And this is also the case today. Our guest today is Jennifer Smythe, professor of film at the University of Warwick. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Michael. We are very, very happy to have you. It's a real honor, and uh, you are a fantastic scholar. You can ra- you can read Jennifer's stuff many places, but uh, also in Cineast magazine, and she has written extensively about the work and career of Fred Zinnemann. The film that we will discuss today is, I have to say, a pure delight. It's uh, one of the <laughs> absolute favorites in my you know private Hitchcock canon it's The Lady Vanishes from 1938 uh, one of the very first actually one of the very first Hitchcocks I, I have ever seen and a film that never fails to bring a smile to my face I will open this up simply by asking do you recollect your initial contact with this film your, your first screening and your initial response to this, I think, most wonderful of the thriller sextet, so-called thriller sextet. Jennifer? I do remember. I think it was about 10 years old. And this was my favorite Hitchcock film as a child. Um, I started off, I think, like most people watching Cary Grant. And it was the North by Northwest that I remember seeing my first Hitchcock film when I was very young. But then I went back and I was happily introduced to all of his um, pre-Hollywood, pre-Selznick work. And this was the one that really stood out. And I think that it's an interesting companion piece with um, North by Northwest for various reasons. Um, But, you know, in in looking at it again, I've I've just been um, astonished. It never ceases to reveal another layer of delight and interest and wit. It's just for me, his most brilliant piece of work. and I'm, I'm often really sad, you know, reflecting upon his career that he actually did leave um, Britain shortly after, you know, in April, and the following year in 1939, he went off to a seven year contract with um, David Selznick. And uh, I often think of that with a, a little bit of sadness because um, very often, you know, I, I find myself wondering what would have happened had Hitchcock remained in Britain. Would he have worked with Alec Guinness, for example, would that have been an interesting wrinkle in his career? Um, and I think uh, this one, it has all of the the brilliance. I know that today we're probably going to be talking about a lot of the uh, social, historical, political contexts of the film, um, but also the gender context. Uh, and it, for me, um, the character acting, the uh, you know the script itself, it was brilliant. And it's even more um, serendipitous, of course, because he chose it almost at random. It was a film that he wanted to uh, make because it would, you know, fulfill the terms of his contract with Gainsborough. 
um, and with Balkan so that he could get out and start a new life um, in Hollywood. Um, and uh, this had set up a year or two before um, by another director and they had even done exterior shots in Yugoslavia um, and had it all set and then had to abandon it because they found out the film wasn't making Yugoslavia look that good. Um, and then luckily Hitchcock happened upon it um, and turned it into, for me, the most brilliant um, crime crime I've ever seen. Given the, the pedigree of the, of the film, it's amazing that it seems so much of a piece. Sebastian, what's your story with The Lady so, uh, Vanishes? I think I approached this movie as a train person, let's say. I mean, I've, I've been always in love with trains and with movies set in trains. Uh, in Polish cinema, of course, we have a, um, at least a f one brilliant famous movie set entirely on a train, uh, which pays homage to Hitchcock, probably to his American period. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Jerzy Kowalerowicz's Night Train, yes. Uh, but basically, I think you can see uh, that maybe they borrowed from The Lady Vanishes as well. And I I always loved this idea of you know creating... Um, suspense, thrilling situations uh, in, in a train. I was traveling in trains for years, so probably that's that's what I always associated this movie with. And now revisiting it after many years, I think what strikes me um, most is the fact that this movie is not as showy as Hitchcock's previous thrillers. It doesn't have these huge set pieces, these impressive scenes that are very... Uh, contrived and complicated in a way, like a um, boy with a bomb scene from Sabotage or Royal Albert Hall. This movie is so uh, fluent and it just goes in this hypnotic rhythm of a train. And I, I love it, I must say, I, I, I really love it. Well, let's let's try to unpack <laughs> unpack it in, in, in some fashion. Um, you, you know, to me, after all those years, and I, I need I need to I have to say that I didn't appreciate this the first time around was this absolutely daringly slow way in which it opens. You know, the, the basically the first 20 minutes almost are uh, daringly, you know, blatantly uneventful. You know, it's 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 just, you know, this very leisurely opening, you know, with with some British people vacationing somewhere in Central Europe, you know, with this gibberish of a language being spoken, which, by the way, today would be probably completely offensive if anyone did that. But um, and, and then, you know, it, it's sudden once we get on the train, it becomes, I think, the Hitchcock thriller that the audience of the time expected it to be because they were already acquainted with the uh, uh, Hitchcock language and his syntax and his pacing. And I think that he he very deliberately postpones the main dish, let's say, and, and I find it very delightful. But also, I, we need to say, we need to mention the absolutely brilliant script, because I think that, you know, the dialogue and the, 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 the sheer complexity of this, you know, network of characters is something to behold simply in terms of how beautifully it is written. I don't know if, if Sebastian, you may uh, comment on that and also on the history of adaptation, because the movie is an adaptation, right? Yes, yes, it's an adaptation of the book The Wheel Spins by Ethel Lina White. And we we try to compare, you know, Hitchcock's films with uh, with novels, with originals. And it's always a, a funny comparison because we we mostly discuss what he cut out of the of the book. And in this case, uh, what I would like to stress is uh, that even on the first 20 or 30 pages of the book, we have 
so so many movie metaphors or uh, allusions to cinema you know it, it you you can feel that this this book this novel was written uh, when cinema was already a uh, quite popular entertainment and respected among middle class i think more or less already although one of the first jokes in the book is that uh one of the one of the ladies says that she's going to to see movies uh, uh to see films of course films not movies where it's english culture uh as a as a guilty pleasure and you have these movie associations in this book and so that's why i think it's like it's kind of a ready-made material for for a movie in a way although uh I think the changes that they made, for example, adding the uh, the pair of these uh, eponymous characters, Caldicott and Charters, right? They are so famous, uh, played by Nonton Wayne and Basil Radford, respectively, who reappeared in other movies later on. I think these are great choices, and these 20, first 25 minutes really establish this kind of ensemble piece. You know, I think it's very close to rear window when it comes to this idea of showing different worlds, separate worlds. And of course, the strain compartments are in a way like, you know, windows um, into something, showing us something or screening it from us. So I think that's pretty brilliant. And of course, I think the this collaboration with, with screenwriters was crucial. But what is what is interesting is that they didn't get on well, right? I mean, after making this film, uh, Sidney Gilliatt and Frank Lodner, they, they never worked with Hitchcock uh, again, and they were kind of jealous, I think, of his success. And generally, they were probably uh, screenwri screenwriters who wanted their work to be more or less uh, left as, as it was. They didn't like this, you know, constant changes that Hitchcock wanted to make. Well, it did land a successful uh, career in their own right uh, with films like Green for Danger and stuff. But Jennifer, I, I'm, I love, uh, you know, in your writing, uh, particularly how you describe acting. Um, uh, and uh, I, want, I was wondering if you have any favorites here uh, in this brilliant cast, absolutely brilliant cast. Do you have any uh, particular performance that you would like to sort of uh, put a spotlight on? <laughs> Well, I love Margaret Lockwood. Um, I think most often she's associated with Carol Reed. Um, she made a number of films with him throughout her career and really sort of carried British cinema through the late 30s and 40s. Um, she was iconic, really. Um, and many people remember her, of course, from um, Man in Grey and Wicked Lady. Um, so her, a great breakthrough film um, with James Mason. Mason, of course, went off. Hollywood. She didn't like Hollywood particularly. She was there for a little bit uh, before war broke out in 1939 and came back and um, really became a standby of, of British cinema during the 40s. Um, very often associated with costume melodramas, but she's, um, she's a brilliant actress. Um, and her daughter, of course, went on to act as well, too. The two of them did a double act in Peter Pan in later years and uh, were quite well known. Um, but she's... Uh, She's marvelous, and I think more than any other Hitchcock heroine, she's the one that I really identify with because she's so very set on, you know, recognizing what she saw. The, the lady, Miss Roy, did actually vanish. Um, she isn't afraid of taking on um, a system of men who basically want to um, tell her that she's hysterical or that she um, has been hit on the head or she's just a, a woman or whatever. And I think, in a way, it comes out in the very first moments of the film when she and um, Googie Withers um, and the other actress, I can't remember her name, um, sort of have trooped in from their, their hike in the mountains. Um, and 
uh, Naunton Wayne and Basil Radford, who play um, Caldecott and Charters, look at them. Um, and because of the way that these three wealthy young women have with the hotel proprietor, you think that they're, um, he, he says, oh, they're just Americans. They must be Americans or whatever, um, the almighty dollar. And there's this assumption because they're so assertive, because they know what they want and they can get the attention of the maitre d', um, that they are American, not British, that they're not, you know, quite right. Um, like a, an English woman wouldn't be so um, forceful and know what she wants. And for me, Margaret Lockwood, she's just marvelous all the way through. And she has such a rapport with Michael Redgrave. And of course, he was very much wedded to the theater. He didn't do as much in film, um, for example, compared with uh, Ralph Richardson or Laurence Olivier, who really had fantastic careers in cinema. He was much more of a theater man. Um, but I have to say mischievously for me, the, the two character actors, Norton Wayne and, and Basil Radford are the ones that I always gravitate to. Of course, they, they reprised their roles of the cricket loving Englishman who never quite fit into any kind of foreign setting with um, Night Train to Munich, which was Carol Reed's attempt really to um, duplicate the success of this film a couple of years later. But there, I think um, the script is quite different and Margaret Lockwood does not have um, such um, an empowered role um, as a protagonist. She very much is, is the second fiddle to um, Rex Harrison's agent. And here, yeah. she's much more on an equal footing with, um, with Michael Redgrave and really in many senses dominates the film. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a joy to watch. I think more than any other Hitchcock film, many people talk about Hitchcock and gender and uh, Grace Kelly, Lisa Fremont, all of these moments when you have, um, you know, really brilliant, uh, um, female protagonist um, operating in, in, in various ways. And um, it's Margaret Lockwood for me that's uh, mm. a surprise far and away. She's marvelous. She's marvelously knowing also in the role because, you know, it's one point early in the film, she says something like, I have done everything and 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 you and you believe her you know she she's a woman of experience and and now she you know the reason she's marrying is not that she's you know idealistic about marriage it's just that you know she you know just assumes that this is the stage of her life in which she should probably marry <laughs> she has nothing left to do so she says why don't i just kill myself and get married you know and she right. married the blue-blooded check chaser as her friends <laughs> jeer at her um, yes. yeah she seems you know, like she's ready to go to the scaffold. It's the same type of thing. Uh, and it's, it's very funny because it's all done with a very light touch. Um, mm -hmm. And there, of course, it's, it's much more as owed actually to the screenwriters, I think, than to, than to Hitchcock. And he had perhaps sense to leave a good thing alone um, and to just fiddle really with the end, which is the, sort of the great shootout um, mm -hmm. and the train is stationary at the border. Yeah, I, I'm very curious, and this is also a question to Jennifer, because you you are, um, and it's also in a sort of reversed position to Hitchcock's. I mean, you're an American in Britain, and uh, you know the the movie takes. I think it takes some sort of a very particular look at British culture and at Britishness, which I think is partly fond of Britishness and partly satirical about it. What's your experience of, of it? Well, um, it, it's funny because I, I actually have dual citizenship. My father was, um, he was born in, in Britain. Um, so I do have that kind of dual vision. And uh, I was raised with Hitchcock's sort of earlier periods um, and his Britishness. And so when I was viewing this, I, I, I had that kind of inside knowing um, 
poking fun at yourself. I mean, but that's very much the essence of British charm, if there is indeed such a thing, that you are able to take the piss out of yourself and to to make fun of of the institution. And this is something that um, Iris Henderson does quite frequently. This is something that Gilbert, Michael Redgrave's character, does again and again when he's making fun of his the reasons for his um, his father marrying his mother. He was always willing to get a lady out of, in, in trouble out of out of the difficulty, even if it extended to marrying her. So, I mean, there's always this sort of give and take repartee, which I think is essential um, in many British comedies. And I think that the screenwriters really pushed it to the nth degree. Um, and it's 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 really quite something. But it, it's funny because even in the opening sequences, um, when you see uh, Margaret Lockwood sort of going up the stairs with her friends to their dinner, and then you have Caldecott and Charters sitting grumpily down below with the rest of the stranded passengers. Um, the the owner of the hotel announces, I think, first in Italian, and then in French, and then in German. Um, that the, the train has been um, held up because of the avalanche and uh, they have to stay there overnight. And then finally, the last language used is English. And, and it, suddenly they get up and they and by the time they get to the desk, they realize um, that there's no room except the maid's room. And it's hilarious because uh, you have the English always thinking that wherever they go, English is spoken and that they have sort of preeminence in this situation. And it, it's patently not true here. And it's really a send up of this, um, this attitude, I think, that was prevalent on the continent, particularly in the 1930s. And there was a um, kind of joke with the British traveler. They always said that the wogs started at Calais. Um, so anything that was outside of Britain was considered to be you know, absolutely appalling. Um, and you could never expect anything of a foreigner. Um, and yet it's, there's this element of humor and sending up those two that's just so hilarious. <laughs> Um, they're marvelous together and, and they would go on to make so many films um, through the 1940s. They became a kind of double act that people would look for, almost like Laurel and Hardy. Um, yeah. Uh, and Michael Redgrave's character is a little bit of the op of their opposite number here because he is uh, genuinely interested in the culture of the of the country that they are visiting, right? They're, they're, he's you know recording their music, and he 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 demands respect for for you know this folk uh, folk culture that he finds there. Uh, Sebastian, any comments on on that? Yes, th these are great points, and I think um, I love this Englishness. Uh, Charles Barr emphasizes that you know for him it's Englishness, not even Britishness. Uh, he thinks that Hitchcock's movies are quintessentially English. I, I don't know. I wouldn't agree like 100%. I mean, we're talking about his British period. But uh, although I love it, I think uh, our perspective, you know, this Eastern European perspective may be a bit different because we are often this butt of a joke, right? In, in this case, of course, we laugh at them and with them. And I'm not, uh, I don't feel kind of insulted at all, of course. But I think it's interesting, you know, how... Uh, 1930s cinema portrayed these these uh, foreign lands, and I think in this case, you know, this uh, made-up countries is a bit like kind of like the lands of Lubitsch, right? Like this European lands in a way, or you know, this imagined European countries. So, so that's that's kind of funny. But I think when we try to find the the modern uh, kind of examples of that, I would say Grand Budapest Hotel comes closest to this kind of imagination. Uh, which is great, but uh, one thing I I've heard I think in the um, one of the Criterion Collection materials was that because of the sound of the train 
that is all the time in the background, some mm, possibly controversial dialogue could be accepted by censors. Like meaning that we didn't really hear these lines or they were not as exposed as they could be uh, otherwise. And do you think that that may be true? I mean, the, the it sounds like a plausible idea that because, for example, the story you mm, uh, Jennifer mentioned about this out of wedlock marriage, right? I mean, the, the marriage because there is somebody on the way. Uh, uh, there was this uh, there is this theory that, you know, it was OK to. To, to include these lines because we have this, you know, this soundtrack which kind of makes them less audible. I don't know. Do you think it may be relevant in this case? I don't know. I mean, because I think very often the censors would have to read the script. So it would depend upon the translation as well, too. Whoever was translating Gilead's uh, and Lounder's script would have to be very, you know, well up in that kind of wit and be able to get the idiom to translate in a particular way. So that is interesting because I, obviously I haven't looked at the different translations, um, but I think that if you if you consider the first production as it was planned um, with Roy William Neal back in 1937, they had done exterior shots in Yugoslavia, hoping that they could actually do some significant work there. And the officials, the police realized very soon, um, just from looking at the way the film was being shot, that it was not being exactly complimentary to Yugoslavia. And they were like, get out of here. And, and that was it basically. So I don't know how much you can rely on that um, because there's, there's that sense as well too. Um, how, what are the senses going to get? Um, they read the things as well as watch them. And I mean, yes, you can get a censor drunk and get them to forget what they've seen on screen, but I don't know. <laughs> I think yeah. everything, the thing is the repartee is just so quick. The pace is so quick very often. And this is one of those things with English humor that very often it doesn't translate particularly well. And, and you know, maybe it was the case with those senses. Oh, well, they're just English, forget about it. Nobody pays any attention to them anyway, <laughs> you know? I find it also fascinating and for me, you know, this was the first time that I watched the film trying, I, I didn't even try, but sort of more aware of the political con context. And, you know, I, I did ask myself a question at one point, does the movie contain a drop of, let's say, British jingoism? Because uh, there is this uh, moment when Miss Froy, who is this figure of benevolent British spy, um, who says, you know, about the people of whatever country it is, she says, oh, they're just like children, you know, they just, you know, they like dancing, you know, and the, mm. it's it's a classic colonial line. And uh, I think that there is a little bit of puzzlement, you know, the, I, I would I would account it more to puzzlement with Middle Europa, as it's known, uh, more than to any, you know, malicious intent. But but the, the moment, for example, when, when Michael Redgrave, you know, they just struggled with Margaret Lockwood with the guy and they put him in the chest and, and he says with this sort of like, you know, disgust, oh, garlic, right? He, smel he smells of garlic. So I, I think there is just a little bit of um, superiority, I would say, but on it's definitely, definitely balanced with very satirical view of Britishness as well, because those two guys are quintessentially a British satire of Britishness. Yeah, I would agree. And I mean, definitely there's that moment when 
Freud, uh, Dame Maywitty is actually talking about, um, you know, the, the happy children in Central Europe or whatever. Um, but then I think Basil Radford actually says, you wouldn't know that from their politics. Right. Mm. And she's able to then respond, well, you know, you know, you could say the same thing about England because we're actually quite honest as a rule, but you'd never know that from our own politicians. <laughs> um, and because this is precisely because this is unfolding um, within the context of Munich, um, and the real anguish, I think, in May 1938, when this film was being shot, um, with worries that Czechoslovakia would be invaded. I mean, it was there was a, a real sense that um, that appeasement had run its course, um, but that those men were still in power. There was a real anger. Absolutely, and, and if uh, to me, just to think that this cheerful, delightful comedy, really a comedy thriller, is made just you know right before. Uh, Second World War and you know it, it's it's there you know the, it's permeating the movie you know the, the it's uh, the, it also adds a little bit of a chill to those lines about cricket you know when when they ask what's happening to England and you think that they are interested in politics and they are just interested in crit cricket so I think th that's a pretty harsh criticism of the appeasement policy I would say yeah absolutely and I mean the Anschluss I think happened in um, mid March. Mm -hmm. 1938 so you know just as they were getting started Europe was was falling and uh, you know I think 1938 was a in the spring and summer this is when gas masks I think were um you know given to the civilian population in England for the first time um there was all sorts of anxiety about what was going on in Europe and and this is you know a backdrop to all of that um and it's it's fairly explicit um I think in the film, uh, what's so remarkable though is that it's it's an older woman, it's Dame May Whitty who is the spy. She is the you know representative of the British establishment who seems to actually know what's going on, um, and it's it has nothing whatsoever to do with with the men. Um, and I think that for me, that's the the one sort of inspiring thing about Britain is that there seems to be this kind of bewilderment on the part of men when it comes to the treatment of assertive women that you have. Um, for example, Michael Redgrave, he's he's obviously um, completely smitten with uh, Iris Henderson, with uh, Margaret Lockwood's character, um, but he lets her run on, you know, even though at first he's rather dubious about whether Miss Freud has actually disappeared and whether he ought to believe this woman, he still lets her have her head to a certain extent. And Basil Radford and Norton Lane, Charters and Caldicott, they're really annoyed at this sort of, you know, assertive wealthy young woman speaking out of turn when it could hold up their train. But they let her go because that's the thing about English men, that they let their women have their heads. Whereas you have um, Paul Lucas, who sort of represents the Central European attitude toward women where, oh, she's hysterical, uh, she needs a Freudian analysis, she needs to be put into a hospital and basically contained. She doesn't know what she's saying. So it's a very sort of different attitude toward dealing with um, female subjectivity and, and, and assertiveness. And I think that's where, I think for me as a spectator, I really kind of appreciate that, that one sort of um, quality among English men that they let their women, you know, basically run over them. And, and it might be a good thing actually in this case, because you see um, mm. that without Lockwood and, and Witty, the whole system itself would have, would have come undone. If I may, I, ha I have one question about women and 1930s cinema, because a big part of your writing is about 1930s, uh, in a way, right? Your the whole magnum opus, in a way, your book about American history, right? I mean, American historical movies uh, of the 1930s. 
huge book and writings about Zinnemann's films, films which obsessively were returning to the 1930s. And you mentioned that Margaret Lockwood is your favorite character. And I'm sometimes, you know, I, I sometimes think, and it's not only my opinion, of course, but that 1930s were this incredible period when it comes to female characters, protagonists, of course, of screwball comedies, which we have a taste here of, of that genre, but not only, right? Generally, 1930s were this incredible period for uh, women characters. Do you agree with that? Kind of, you kind of feel this, that was, that, that was something specifically 1930s in a way? Well, it's it's interesting because I, I wrote primarily the books, as you mentioned, thank you for bringing them up, but uh, I mean, that was a long time ago. It's mostly, um, yeah. it's mostly Hollywood. Uh, mm -hmm. And there in Hollywood, and this is something that I've done more recently, there, there were quite a lot of women who were also screenwriters who were behind the camera. And there were a substantial number of women who were writing in the British cinema uh, industry, but they were far fewer. Um, the, the percentages were, were quite starkly different. It changes a bit. Um, in, in the 1940s, I think because of the war. But, um, you know, and, and Lounder and Gilead, of course, and men. Um, but I think this is an interesting thing about Hitchcock's earlier work that he, of course, uh, you know, made Young and Innocent. And this is adapted from uh, the work of Josephine Tay, who was probably the most famous crime writer in the 1930s. There was a real dependence, I think, on, on women's writing. Um, and of course, the adaptation of The Lady Vanishes, The Wheel Spins, is based upon another one of these uh, female pot boilers um, where you do see the female subjectivity. And so I think there was a real dependence in the 1930s on um, material content that was sourced um, that really did focus on women. And, and many people have argued that um, that cinema goers, 50 to 75% in some cases, were female during the 1920s and 30s, that this was an industry that thrived on catering to a particular female eye. Um, and I think you can, to a certain extent, enfold The Lady Vanishes within, within that. Um, and certainly when Hitchcock is making his transition um, in the United States, what does he do? He takes Joan Harrison with him and she helps to adapt Rebecca. Um, and he basically keeps her by his side throughout his career when he breaks into television. So, uh, you know, he does, I think, keep that particular aspect um, that was honed early on in his career in the 1930s. Um, and I think that it was a particularly susceptible market um, in the United States in the late 1930s and 40s uh, for stories that, that focused on uh, female protagonists. I just think that um, Iris is just so incredible she's so unique she's much more um i think uh an empowered character even than a lot of the the female characters that you would see in screwball comedies in the 1930s or even those of hepburn um that she she is to a certain extent um what is it that michael redgrave's character says about her she said he says that she has two qualities that he always admired in father that she has no manners at all and that she's always seeing things and there is this kind of our admiration for a woman who doesn't conform to any kind of, of stereotype. Um, and, and that goes as well, too, I think, for Dame Mae Whitty. I mean, we see her and she's this nice, sweet little old lady, um, but she's also a spy. But if you think about Dame Mae Whitty herself, she was the first, I think, of two actresses in um, British entertainment history who was actually made a dame. 
um, and the British equivalent of Actors' Equity started in her living room. So she was very much involved in the profession and in unionization for actors. She was very much a part of that culture. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful film. Um, you know, if you sort of peel back the layers and look at all of the, the, um, the roles for women behind the camera and, and also in front of them, yeah. And definitely we could even, you know, extend this gallery of subversive femininity when we look at the character of the nun uh, wearing oh, yes. high heels and, you know, and speaking profanity, actually. She says, well, what was, I guess, considered profanity then. She says the devil. And uh, that, that's that's a striking image. One, I think one of the most deliciously perverse images in Hitchcock when, you know, the camera pans down and from beyond the habit, you can see those high Heel. heels, you know. And then there's that wonderful line that uh, I think Charters actually speaks, which is, people don't go around tying up nuns. It's, it's, <laughs> and it always gets a laugh, um, yeah, because if there's one thing that Hitchcock would actually like to do. Um, yeah, but I mean, this is the thing, I think, of all the people who've written about this film, I think Philip French really nails um, The Lady Vanishes when he says that he loves it because it's, you have all of these middle-class wealthy people who won't back up Iris. They won't save the day. They have their own reasons for not actually saying that Miss Freud um, was on the train and that she possibly may have been kidnapped. Um, you know, Charters and Caldecott want to get to the cricket match. You have the adulterous couple who, you know, don't want to give themselves away by actually testifying. Um, and you have all sorts of other foreigners who have been paid off for various reasons because one of the characters is actually married to the Minister of Propaganda in one of the countries. Um, but then, you know, you have this working class, uh, the one working class British person in the film is the one who actually saves um, Gilbert and Iris from the fate of being um, drugged um, so that they, you know, can actually uh, do something to save um, Miss Freud. I mean, if it hadn't been for Catherine Lacey's nun refusing to poison their drinks, um, you know, Paul Lucas's doctor would have gotten away with the whole scheme. Um, and so this is, this is, I think, uh, one thing that, that not enough American um, critics of the film have actually paid attention to that in Hitchcock's films that the the idea of class is something that's enormously important and it's often overlooked by American critics and then it's something sadly that tends to disappear from a lot of Hitchcock's work as he becomes glossier and more Americanized. Um, I think you could probably argue in his favor with something like Rear Window but again you know the, the characters are still these very posh people that um, to a certain extent you you're there to look at and not really engage with and in here I think there's a much more nuanced canvas there's a much more um, detailed view of class and nationality um, at a particular time and it's something that I think as a historian I, I respond to um, much more than say a film like um, for example Notorious or Rear Window mm -hmm. pretty to look at but mm. Yeah. Um, it only gets you so far. I think it's fascinating because for me, as a as a viewer who you know tries to listen to these movies, it's not that clear that the nun character is this lower lower middle class or lower class English lady. And apparently, it's quite clear for like for uh, viewers like you or, or or British viewers. Charles Barr also in his article on this on this film he points that out and for me you know I, I have to read about it I 
cannot hear that that well. So it's she's a Cockney. You can hear it. So basically, if they sound like Michael Caine, they're Cockneys. <laughs> <laughs> That's what. Okay. Nobody sounds like Michael Caine anymore. <laughs> I'm afraid. So um, yes, these are these are all fascinating. Um, themes and you mentioned Philip French I wanted to mention one more person uh, Robin Wood who's you know one of these most important Hitchcock scholars and he didn't write a lot about the Lady Vanishes but then years later he wrote this very short article in which he said that actually his um, adventure with Hitchcock and his love uh, in uh, with Hitchcock movies started with the Lady Vanishes and the reason that he didn't write a lot about it is that it's just and now I'm quoting this is purely because it is too perfect, so transparent that there is little to say. And I, I think it's, it's in a way it's fascinating because uh, that points out to the need of scholars or critics to always look for something very profound and it makes it easier to write about, right, in a way. And now we have this The Lady Vanishes and what we're doing now, we're trying to uncover the context but also to share our love for this you know, piece of pure entertainment. So maybe I think it's 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 interesting that 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 may be the reason that the Lady Vanishes is uh, not as uh, established critically as you know his later more profound movies like I don't know Psycho or Vertigo. Because I think that you know the perfection here comes with this lightness of touch that is simply unmatched, and I would love to show this film because to people who keep telling me that you know Christopher Nolan is a great British director you know and, and you know to 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 compare this with Tenet which is like you know this 200 ton you know uh, block of a film and here you have a film of 98 minutes which is so light and elegant and perfect sad little people who think Christopher Nolan is a director <laughs> um yeah and it's also I think it's interesting to look at the Lady Vanishes like we look at, for example, Detour, you know, the noir. Of course, it's not the same type of production, mode of production, but it's similar. You know, when you, when I was rewatching The Lady Vanishes, I had to repeat the first shot twice because I couldn't believe that they really, you know, made this toy town so uh, obvious, right? They don't try to cover anything. They, they're not trying to pretend that this budget was bigger than it was, right? And But on the other hand, for example, the flickering light... That is in many of these scenes, you know, always when you travel by train, you can see this flickering light, which changes all the time and they preserve it. They can do that. And and it's marvelous. So in a way, you know, you, you believe this movie because uh, it's so fantastically acted and you don't care if it has Christopher Nolan's budget or not. Right. It doesn't really matter in this case. I find it beautiful in a way. Well, I, I just hope that Christopher Nolan never never remakes this film. Uh, but uh, well, there. Uh, speaking of, of of the afterlife of of the Lady Vanishes, uh, I, I would like to ask you about the well, the influence, I guess, the, the the afterlife of the film. And I'm not referring to the horrible remake, you know, that George Axelrod wrote in the '70s, and Sybil Shepherd, <laughs> you know, she who is doing a Carol Lombard impersonation and. She also impersonates Hitler in that film, by the way, and she's better as Hitler. But uh, it's a very bad film. But uh, and and there was a BBC adaptation uh, remake that I haven't seen. But apart apart from the remakes, uh, where do you see uh, Jennifer? Where do you see the spirit of this film reappear in the decades to come? I don't know. Somebody once compared this film to Mozart, and I think that that's that's pretty close. Um, that it is very bubbly. Uh, 
it is memorable. It's something that you can't duplicate, um, that you can reference in a kind of admiring way. Um, but it's just, it's absolute perfection. And that anybody who is going to try to copy it is going to fail, including Hitchcock. Um, to a certain extent, I see echoes of The Lady Vanishes in, and many people have seen this in North by Northwest. And there, of course, it's interesting because you have a very wealthy uh, upper middle class white man, Madison Avenue executive, who um, has his own uh, subjectivity doubted um, where, you know, Cold War spy system is able to hoodwink the police and um, the media and so forth. Um, and it's a similar situation to, to Iris and yet it, it isn't. Um, because you know he's a man, um, and because to a certain extent the secret services are well aware of of the act that's being played upon him. Um, with Iris, the stakes are higher, and I think it's something that's much more visceral for viewers who are watching it, particularly women who have often had their own points of view dismissed. Um, and it's it's a film certainly that bears watching again in the light of of Me Too and what has happened um, in terms of gender in Hollywood. So it's another one that I think will continue to um, bear new interpretations as the years go by. Um, but for me, you know, when I was watching it, I think about uh, the train scene in, in Julia, in Fred Zinnemann's Julia, because I, I've looked at this so often. And in fact, um, Zinnemann uh, admired Hitchcock very, very much and, and frequently would put these little admiring asides um, in, his, in his films. Um, and precisely because Julia was set in the late 1930s and, uh, you know, it was unfolding as the, the Anschluss um, was coming about. It's at the same time um, in which The Lady Vanishes is set and you have a moment where um, you have a mystery woman who literally is vanished because she's somebody in the resistance um, and Jane Fonda's Lillian Hellman character is there to try and um, provide money for her um, resistance organization against the fascists. There are all sorts of layers that connect these two films um, in, in so many ways. Um, but there, of course, the one thing that Fred Zinnemann lacked um, was, was the, the bubbly sense of humor of, of Alfred Hitchcock. This is something that, he, that you could never replicate and his ability um, to move things in a, in a certain kind of joyous pace that I think you can only find in the best of Mozart, which is why mm -hmm. I just, I uh, just love this film and mm. I return to it again and again. Um, and I think many people, when they look at Hitchcock, they think about the glossy vertigo, as you say, and, and um, rear window, north by northwest and, and even mm -hmm. psycho. And they forget about this earlier period, which was for me, the most rewarding, um, you know, cause I listened to your episode on, um, you know, Richard Henney and the 39 Steps and I'm Young and Innocent. And these for me are the most personal Hitchcock films. Um, they're the ones that I think tie him most closely to his, to his youth, to his upbringing and context. Um, mm. And if you have that kind of feel for him, um, this film will yield incredible emotional and artistic um, connections um, that I think those later films just, they don't have. They're pretty, mm. but before I ask from, for some you know, closing, wrapping up comments also from Sebastian, I just wanted to say that there was one more name that I thought of this time when I was watching it, and I have no idea if there is an essay somewhere out there in this huge Hitchcock you know, library about his possible affinities with Gilbert Keith Chesterton. But I, well, I was thinking a little bit about this Chestertonian spirit, you know, of this sort of 
you know, Father Brown stories and also of Catholic background, you know, this sort of joyous mystery to be solved, you know, like there's there's this uh, moral conundrum, but there's also this joy, this this humor. And I, I have no idea if Hitchcock was a Chesterton reader, but but I was thinking about a man called Thursday, particularly when when I was when I was watching this this film. But, you know, probably there is an essay already written about that somewhere. <laughs> so we, we, we'll need to find out. The last the last thought I have uh, is about uh, another obvious train movie, uh, Murder in the Orient Express. And of course, Certainly there are essays about these two, comparing these two movies. We have murder, we have trains, we have a crime plot. But what is striking for me is that when you compare The Lady Vanishes and its Mozart-like quality, and I totally agree with this Mozart comparison, it really, I think, uh, that's, the, that's the point of, 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 of this. Uh, that's kind of expresses the feeling we have watching this film when I compare it with Kenneth Branagh's adaptation, which is like... Christopher Nolan doing The Lady Vanishes, right? Right? It's like, you know, huge budget, you know, like showy everything, showy camera work, showy costumes, uh, great cast. Of course, we have great cast here, I mean, in The Lady Vanishes, but somehow it all clicks. This cast doesn't step on each other's shoes. And in Branagh's version, uh, it cannot be like that. Everyone must be shining all the time. So, and then, you know, there is also, so there's this, I don't want to say modesty, but there's this like, understated quality of course in the lady vanishes that i think it's also something we cannot repeat because now the the movie machine is totally different and it's one of the reasons why you cannot repeat this this kind of homely feel that this movie has or or i don't know local feel i think it's truly truly beautiful um so but i have one, one last question to to jennifer it's because since it's very exciting for me to you know have a have a scholar of this statue with us and i I'm reading you all the time, almost. Um, so my last question, Nobody's Girl Friday. Yes, that's the title of your latest book, right? It's your latest. Uh, and I think it's a great book, much, I think much better than what was recently published. Maybe you had a, you could have a look already, Women versus Hollywood. There was this, this book published like, I think this year. Um, and it's, it tries to, uh, re rephrase or reframe the history of Hollywood uh, into their today's standards. And but what I loved about your book is that you, on the very first page, you write how much you you just love movies, and that was the starting point for you. Not Laura Malvi's theories or the 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 number of of different canons of Andrew Saris, but you know just your experience of watching films. And I wonder if what do you think as a, as a scholar? Because you mentioned John Harrison. Uh, on many pages there and uh, Catherine Brown as well and that's that these are the links to Hitchcock in your book but do you think that uh, and you mentioned um, that we will have to maybe reinterpret The Lady Vanishes uh, in terms of Me Too do you think that Hitchcock himself is now kind of uh, in a in a different position in a maybe a difficult position as this uh, auteur who could be more or less a predator on the set. Do you do you think about it when watching The Lady Vanishes? Uh, it's maybe a, a bit of a controversial question, but you know, uh, we we can talk about it here. Nobody will uh, tell us anything. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because I was thinking about that. I mean, everybody tends to view Hitchcock now through Tippi Hedren's experience, and I don't want to in any way diminish the horror of what she had to go through and how that affected her 
mental health and her career. Um, but I think this is the case with very many men in Hollywood uh, and in the British film industry as well too, in any film industry, um, that you can't really judge them by one particular experience. I think that um, Margaret Lockwood and Hitchcock had a very good relationship. He and Grace Kelly did as well too. Um, Joan Harrison, um, you know, wouldn't have had her career as a producer and a screenwriter without him. And he was very, very funny. I think there was this one uh, thing that stood out when I was doing research for the book that she was interviewed and, and said that when she first appeared on the set as a producer, Hitch sent her a box of cigars and said, now you're a producer, honey. And she said, it's so much better than roses, you know? Um, and that was the kind of man he was. And I think that stands out with a lot of Hollywood men, like for example, Harry Cohn, people often dismiss him as a sexual predator um, and a horrible man. They see him as the, the Jack Waltz from The Godfather, when actually he was the producer who hired more women as writers and producers um, within his studio than any of the others the moguls put together. Um, and one writer said, you know, he was the kind of guy where he might sock you in the jaw, but he would never stab you in the back. And I think this is one of the, things that historians have to come to terms with, with women in the studio system in all film industries, that very often your allies, you know, they will help you up until a certain point. And the ones that um, will make a pass at you occasionally may also be the ones that will offer you a job. Um, and you just, and back then you had to take the, the rough with the smooth. Um, and it was how you negotiated your career that basically determined how successful you were. And the ones that were good in the clinches managed to to carve a career and I think to a certain extent you know that is true today but I would hate to have Hitchcock dismissed as a predator um I think his you know his academy award a special academy award acceptance speech says it all when he says that there were four women who he really owed everything to an editor a screenwriter um you know a wife uh and and a mother and it was Alma Revel um so you know he did pay his debts um, mm -hmm. And I think, I hope, watch the space, maybe there will be a, a re-examination of The Lady Vanishes in light of Me Too. I think certainly it sends up a lot of pop psychology and Freud, Freud you know, um, and it's an, it's an interesting film to look at within this cultural climate. I, I do hope that the conversation goes on because he's, you know, Hitchcock is, was many things. Um, and this film, you know, is one of those, I think that will help open him up to a whole mm -hmm. new audience. Um, it's, it, for me, it's his greatest piece of work. Hmm. I think that's a perfect note on so many levels to, to finish this. I only can say that uh, only now I also thought as I was listening to you um, about the title, the very title, you know, the lady vanishes and uh, that, you know, it is about the disappearing or invisible woman, but you know, the, the ultimate wisdom of the film is that she, reappears and that uh, she is victorious and uh, I, I think that that's also part of the uh, of the of this whole meaning which I also hope that the movie will be rediscovered and hopefully uh, this conversation that we just had will help a little bit with, a little bit with that as well uh, Jennifer thank you so much it was a pure pleasure and, and a fantastic honor to have you here on the podcast and uh, hopefully the, not, not the last time so uh, we send you all the best from from Warsaw to 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 University of Warwick and hopefully you are surviving the you know the pandemic in good health and really oh, thank you so much but the honor was mine this was a pure delight thank you thank both. you thank you so much
It was really wonderful to have um, Jennifer as our guest and, and uh, we can already tell you that our next episode, which will tackle a controversial film uh, of the Jamaica Inn, uh, will also have a wonderful guest, but we won't reveal his or her identity yet. Uh, if you like this episode, please follow us on Facebook and um, like our fan page. Please tell other Hitchcock fans about our podcast. We are putting a lot of energy and love of Hitchcock's work into this podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening for the 21st episode of Foreign Correspondent. Deeper into Hitchcock.